You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. You guys can have a seat. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. We are in a message series uh, where we're taking a deeper look at this amazing gift of life. And we started the first week by laying out three premises that are the foundation of everything we are saying in the weeks that follow. So I want to review those very quickly. Uh, The first premise is that God is the giver of life. What that means is that when it comes to questions about the nature of life and how life flourishes, uh, he is the one that we go to for answers because he is the author of life. Second premise is that his words sustain our life. What that means is the Bible is not just a a list of rules from God uh, designed to kind of bring the fun down on our life. Uh, The purpose of God's words are to teach us our kind of life. And so they, they form really a habitat in which our lives will flourish. They are the boundaries of, of the habitat for our life. Now, we are free, of course, to ignore those words, but we are not free to thrive apart from God's words. So that's premise number two. The final premise is that life is a partnering gift. In other words, we don't just stand on the sidelines and watch new life appear. We amazingly have been given the opportunity by God to be co-creators with him in the arrival of new life. And so in the messages that followed the first week, we are considering the ways in which God has invited us to partner with him in this great gift, the nature of that partnership arrangement. So we've considered sex, which is the activity in which new life begins. Then last Sunday, we talked about the two genders, which is required for sexual activity to produce new life. And today we turn our attention to the commitment of marriage, which is the context in which God says this new life needs to occur, in which sexual activity needs to occur. At the end of Genesis chapter 2, just before sinner enters into the world, we read this, Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, Eve had just been created. So for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. For what reason? The, the way the text reads, it basically implies that Adam was struck by Eve and her beauty. And so for that reason, not only Adam, but men that follow Adam will leave their father and mother and be united to their wife and become one flesh. So the immediate reason was Adam's attraction to the just created Eve. But this, of course, is not just a personal story about Adam and Eve. This is the story of the first man and woman and the first marriage. This is to be the first of many stories that are to follow the template of this first man and this first woman. So the reason God created Eve as Adam's opposite counterpart is so that what's described in this verse wouldn't just happen once, but would, for most men and women, go on happening for the rest of history. And that's exactly what has taken place. In every corner of the world, since that first man and woman and that first marriage, The majority of men and women have been getting married. That is until now. Marriage hasn't died. It's just in rapid decline. The marriage rate in the U.S. has dropped 60% in the last 50 years. This is not the number of marriages, but the rate, the percentage of people getting married has dropped 60%. That's significant. So you have to ask why. Are people no longer interested in the opposite sex? Are they no longer interested in sexual activity? Well, no. Because while marriage rates have fallen, the number of adults in romantic relationships who are living together has skyrocketed. So it's clear the attraction that was present between the first man and the woman is still working well and drawing people together. 
What has changed, of course, and we know this, is the idea that that attraction should lead to the commitment called marriage, and that that attraction and that commitment to marriage should precede the activity of sex. That is no longer the idea in our culture. In fact, that's an, an ancient memory, really, in our culture. So the question now is, where did the idea of marriage come from? And there's really only two possible locations. Either it came from heaven or it came from somewhere here on earth. Either marriage came from the mind of God or it is a human invention. And the implications of which of those two you decide are, are pretty clear. You see, if, if marriage comes from somewhere here on earth, then that means we can change it because we invented it. It serves us and whatever our ever-changing interests and desires might be. And that, of course, is the popular idea right now. Marriage is just a social construct. This is a phrase you, you hear a lot about many different things. It's just a social construct. And what that means is the societies have constructed marriage to serve the interests of society at that particular time. So it follows then, if the interests of the individuals in a society or society changes, then what was constructed, of course, needs to change to better fit the interests of society at that time. And that's what's been going on in our culture and really in all modern cultures. But if the opposite is true, if marriage didn't come from here, if it isn't a human invention, a social construct, if really marriage came from God, then we don't get to mess with it. We don't get to change what it means because it is rooted and anchored in God himself. It finds its origin outside and above us. Now, God had a purpose in the creation of marriage. And while cultures may differ in the particulars of how they uh, mark marriages, deep at the core of marriage is the mind of God. The Bible makes it very clear that marriage was and continues to be his idea, not our idea. So the question then is, what is God's purpose in marriage? The purpose really is to protect us and the new life that might result from our sexual activity. So this week we're going to look at how marriage protects those who get married. And then we're going to look at how marriage, next week, how marriage protects children. That'll be the final message in this series. The protection of marriage is summarized in a few verses in the book of Proverbs in the middle of the Old Testament portion of the Bible. So let me read them to you. These are the verses we're going to go over this morning. Proverbs 5, 15 through 18. <clears throat> it says, Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public square, you're probably thinking, wait, I thought we were talking about marriage. Sounds like public works project here. Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and here it is. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. This is talking about marriage. Now, if you think you hear sexual overtones in this passage, you're right. In these verses, the search for water is compared with the search for sex. Now, this, was, uh, this verse was written in a desert community, so they knew everything about how important the search for water was, and I think we all do. The idea of this passage is when it comes to the pursuit of sexual activity, we really have two options, kind of like the two options we have when it comes for the pursuit of water. The two options of sexual activity and its pursuit are we can either pursue it inside marriage, married sex, or option two is unmarried sex. And these are compared to the two options when it comes to water, either surface water or ground water. 
Those are the two comparisons. Surface water is, as it says, it's on the surface of the earth in the form of lakes and rivers and puddles and reservoirs. It is relatively easy to drink from because you just have to walk to where it is and drink from it. Groundwater, the other source of water, is, is, is different. It takes more effort. And that's because it lies far below the surface of the earth and it requires the digging of a well to access it and usually some kind of storage. In the ancient times it was a cistern, but some kind of storage device to store the water and keep it fresh and cold. So the question is, if there's groundwater, why go to all the work of digging a well? And the reason is because groundwater is a much safer and more reliable source of water. That's because the layers of sand and gravel and silt really serve as a filter that makes the groundwater a very safe source. In fact, in the US, 78% of all public water systems use groundwater as their source. I think you probably know this, but that's really our source of water here in Orange County, particularly in the northern part of Orange County. You may not know this, but every day, 35 million gallons of water are pumped into the aquifer below our feet just to keep the salt water of the ocean from contaminating our groundwater and ruining it. 35 million gallons a day are pumped in. And then in addition to that, 35 million gallons of water are pumped into huge recharge basins so that it can percolate and filter down through the ground and replenish the aquifer that we drink from. That, there's a tremendous amount of money and effort that goes into that. Why? Because of safety. And we face the same kind of choice <clears throat> when it comes to sex. We could fulfill our sexual desires with the many puddles that are available to us. And in our culture, it's never a long walk now to arrive at a, at a puddle of sexual activity. It's pretty easy now. So why shouldn't we do that? Well, for the same reason, I don't drink water from the channel behind my house. The Wintersburg Channel is not a safe source for drinking water. It is easier to drink from a sexual puddle than it is to build a marriage. That's the comparison that's being made here. But the puddles will contaminate your body and your soul. Now, we, we know all about the effects of unmarried sex and the rise of sexually transmitted disease. In fact, an interesting study um, that you might want to look at is, is since the advance of the sexual revolution, how many STDs there are. Started in the 60s with two that could be treated by penicillin. Now there's over 50. So it's just, it's a sourcing problem. But we'll leave the physical, the body impact, the, as we often refer to it, the safe sex talk to all the other experts on that. What I want to talk about this morning is how marriage provides two important filters that makes sex personally safe. Not just physically safe, but personally safe. These are the two filters that are referred to in these verses that make married sex the safest kind. Number one, marriage is designed to filter out selfishness. It's designed to filter out selfishness. What's the first step when you decide to dig a well? You have to pick a location. You have to decide where it is you're going to dig that well. You have to pick a place and then go to work. You have to make a commitment to that particular place. And that's because a well can't be dug in ten shovelfuls. That's not a well. That's a dent in the dirt. It's not a well. 
It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to get to the level where water exists. And then after you're done getting to the water table, is the digging of the well done? Well, now it usually is, but in ancient times when this verse was written, that was not the end of your well digging effort. And that's because these verses were written before concrete. So a well had to be maintained regularly, or the well, the walls of that well would cave in. And this is the image that these verses are painting about a commitment to get married. Building a marriage is like digging a well. It takes a tremendous amount of commitment. You have to make a big decision, and that is, who are you going to marry? Where are you going to dig that well? There are lots of people you could marry, but you have to pick one. And then you have to go to work. Doing what? Building that relationship. You have to learn how to communicate. You have to learn how to get along in a variety of situations, which is not easy. You have to work together. You have to solve problems. I wish someone had told me when I was dating that marriage is primarily a problem-solving arrangement. It's really what you do. Is together, you work on, let's solve this problem. Let's solve that problem. The kids are doing this. What are we going to do about that? Problem after problem. You have to figure out how you're going to work together to do that. You have to figure out how to resolve conflict. There's no two people can hang out for very long and not get sideways with each other. You have to figure out how to, how to support yourself. How are you going to pay your own way? And maybe eventually how you're going to support a family. And the list goes on and on. And none of that just happens. It takes work, a lot of work, and a lot of time. And the selfish will just not put in that kind of work. Now, here's the truth about all of us. We're all selfish, naturally. If we can get away with being selfish, we'll be selfish. That's just who we are. Maybe in different degrees, but we're all basically selfish. The other thing that's true about us is we also want sex. And historically, these two represented a great dilemma. I want to be selfish, but I want sex. And in the past, really throughout all of human history, you had to pick one. Well, are you going to be selfish and get no sex? Or are you going to get rid of your selfishness and get access to sex? Are you going to put in the kind of work to be the kind of person that someone would be willing to marry? Or are you going to stay selfish and be alone? That was the dilemma. But this dilemma no longer exists in our culture. And that's because sex in our culture is now cheap. This is a book that I would recommend you reading if you're interested in this topic. It's not a Christian book. It's written by a sociologist at the University of Texas in Austin. His name is Mark Regeneres. And he, in this book, he, he says that as he's done research on the changing sexual patterns of the adults in America, what he says is that sex is now more widely available and at a lower cost than ever before in human history. And that has profound impacts on our culture. He says, for us, sex really has become kind of like a consumer good. And like any consumer good, the laws of supply and demand determine the price point, determine what that good, in this case sex, what it costs. And he points to three factors in our culture that have driven the price, the cost of sex, way down. Factor number one, he says, is that men have to go on fewer dates now and offer fewer indicators of commitment to access real sex. They used to have to date longer and 
make a marriage commitment or at least promise a lot of great commitments before they got access to sex. But now, sometimes the first date, almost always by the second or third date. That's brought the price of sex down. Factor number two, the risk of pregnancy is now lower than it's ever been. This used to be a real risk in having sex. Is someone getting pregnant? The thing about kids is they're expensive, particularly for the woman who has to carry this child and have this child. Easier for the man to walk away. So th this was a real risk, and therefore it kept sex pretty expensive. But with the advances in contraception and the rise of abortion now, the risk is far less likely. So you can have far more sex and pretty much guarantee you're not going to have to deal with the cost of a child. Factor number three, he says, is the rise of high-quality, free online pornography. So what that does is that, that that makes solitary sex now able to mimic real sex more realistically. So these are the three factors that he says that has driven the cost of sex down. The question is this, what's wrong with sex becoming cheaper? We usually celebrate cost reductions, right? So what's wrong with the price of sex going down? Well, it's because, economically speaking, realistically, someone always has to pay for a reduction in cost. And when it comes to sex, it's pretty much always the women who pay the biggest price. And that's because when it comes to sex, men and women tend to be different in what is most important to them. Now, this is stuff research shows that we all know. It's one of those studies that's like, I knew that. But there's research to back this up in case you wonder about it. What is it that men really want most in a relationship? Well, it's the sex. For women, it's the relationship. I'm not saying that men don't care about their relationship and women don't care about the sex, but generally speaking, men care a whole lot more about just the sex and women care a whole lot more about the relationship. So studies show what most people know on this. So what that means is on an average, men want more sex than women do. So when it comes to sex, men represent the demand and women represent the supply. What that means is that in a consensual relationship, sex begins when women decide that it should. Women are the sexual gatekeepers. They're the ones that set the price point. The guys want the sex. The women say, here, how much is going to cost? And the guys pay the price. Now, what women want is a committed relationship. That's because when it comes to pregnancy, they are the most vulnerable. There's just no getting around that. That's God's design. But they are at a huge disadvantage when it comes to the cost. But now, women are in a culture full of other women who will trade sex for a whole lot less. They're in competition with people who are driving the price down. So they're pressured to do the same. And the result is what? Sex is cheaper, and the result really is selfish men in higher quantities. You know, most cultures have devised ways to keep the price of sex pretty high because it keeps women safer. I remember years ago when I was uh, visiting um, a tribal area in northern Kenya in Africa, and I, I got to meet a young man. As I got to know him, he was 
he just was gushing about this woman that he had fallen in love with and that he wanted to marry. The problem was this. He needed to come up with 40 goats to marry this woman. That, that was the dowry. That was the price that her father had set. You can't marry my daughter until you come up with 40 goats. And he didn't have 40 goats. He didn't have one goat. And so he had a problem. I love this woman. I would like to have sex with this woman, but I'm going to have to pay 40 goats. But what was amazing to me is to listen to him talk about it. He wasn't bitter. He was angry. He had a plan. He had a two-year plan, a two-year 40-goat plan. <laughs> and I, you know, I saw a drive and an initiative in that young Kenyan that I don't see a lot in the young men of our culture. His love and his desire for sex was, was growing him, maturing him. There's a lot of talk these days about toxic masculinity. And sometimes that term is used just to put men down for being men. But there's a point behind that term. And this is something that all cultures have had to deal with. It's because when it, on general, when it comes to the genders, the more dangerous of the two genders are the men. They tend to be jerks in higher quantity than the women. And they tend to represent a lot of danger for a bunch of different reasons. So cultures have had to figure out how do we, how do we protect ourselves from the men? Because men can be dangerous. Well, now men are showing themselves to be somewhat dangerous again. But where did this toxic masculinity come from? Well, it's complex, like a lot of things you see in culture. There's, there's many different reasons you can point to. But I think if you give young men all the sex they want at no cost to them, don't be surprised if they grow up to be irresponsible, selfish jerks. Because there's no incentive for them to be responsible. What they really want, sex, is free now. Or close to free. Why would they learn how to work hard? Why would they work on coming up with 40 goats if they don't have to? Why would they be responsible if they don't have to? You see, marriage is designed by God to keep the price of sex high so that the selfish won't become parents and so that the women are treated with the dignity they deserve because they are the ones who carry new life and must be honored and protected. Now, the most common expression of commitment in the world of cheap sex is to move in together. You know, the arrangement is this. He gets the sex. She gets more of a commitment than just a one-night stand or, or just a dating relationship or someone who's sleeping around. So she gets a, a commitment bump, not marriage, but more of a commitment, and he gets access to all the sex he wants. The problem is that living together without a marriage commitment requires constant marketing. You are constantly marketing yourself to keep the relationship intact, to prove to the other that the price of this commitment is worth it. it the commitment hasn't been settled. It's just what it is now. But there's no statement that legally binds you to anything. So you have to keep working over and over and over again to prove yourself. 
And that's a lot of pressure. Living together is really two consumers who really like each other now, but if they hit a stretch of time where the cost of the relationship is greater than its benefits, then, boy, that relationship is in trouble. That's a lot of pressure. You have to continually market yourself to keep the other one there. Sex was not designed to be a consumer good. It was designed to be a covenant good. A covenant is really the Bible's word for contract. But it's a contract before God, not just before society. Marriage is a contract with society. That's why you go to the justice of the peace, the court, to get it. But it's more than that. It's a commitment before God. And it is to be the place where we weather the ups and downs of our feelings and their feelings. The place where we can be completely vulnerable because the question of your presence in my life has been answered. I don't have to keep marketing. You decided, I decided. We don't know what the future is, but we know what our commitment is. So the pressure is off. I can be completely vulnerable with you. I can get to know the real you. You can get to know the real me because we're not still marketing. We're not still deciding. We decided. And when you have sex outside of marriage, what you're asking is someone to do with their body what neither of you are willing to do with your life. You're saying, let's get completely vulnerable physically, but let's not be willing to do that with our lives. And that brings us to the second filter. The first filter is designed to filter out selfishness. Second filter, marriage is designed to filter out sadness. I think everyone that gets married gets married to be happy. I have performed many weddings, and I've never done any pre-marriage counseling where I've gotten the sense from either one that was like, well, seemed like the next thing to do. No, everyone's excited. I can tell. I mean, one person, I, I often say, so what is it about the other person that, you know, made you want to marry this person? I remember one guy telling me, she just, it's just the way she makes me feel. I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> what are you going to do when that ends, you know? <laughs> but everyone enters into marriage because they believe this person is going to make them happy. I mean, that's the, to live happily ever after now. But that really is a fairy tale. Happiness is, it's surface water. It's, it's temporary. What marriage gives you the chance to do is dig a well that gives you access to the water table of joy. It's much deeper than happiness. But that takes time. And that takes work. That's why at the very end of this, these, this Proverbs passage, it says, May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. That's an interesting phrase, the wife of your youth. If you're calling your wife the wife of your youth, what does that mean? You're not young anymore. You're saying, I remember the wife of my youth. That is not who she is now. That's, that's a memory. It means that neither of you are young anymore. So the question is this, why would someone rejoice in the wife of their youth? Is it because she looks as good as she did on the day you married her? No, neither of you look as good as you did on the day you got married. Time, we know this, is not a friend of beauty. So what would make you look 
at your wife and her at you and bring a smile to each of your face in your 70s. The only thing that will do that is the fact that you have used the time, the decades of your life, to build something of value together that is a blessing to both of you. This verse refers to that as a fountain. What's a fountain? It's where the water from the well is drunk and brings refreshment. And the well of marriage provides fountain access to really two kinds of blessings that, in my experience, are the deepest kind of joy that I've experienced in this life. The one is the blessing of family, and the other is the blessing of deep friendship. First, the family. Literally, what this verse is saying, may, may your fountain be blessed. What this literally is saying is, may the sex you have produce children. That's what it's saying. The Bible is not against sex. It's very explicit. In fact, read on. I'm not going to read on. You'd be blushing, and we're not going to do that on Sunday morning. But read on. It's talking about, may the sex you have produce children. Family, having kids is a well of tremendous blessing. And oftentimes, when you have the kids, you don't realize it until they're gone. What a blessing it is. And you really don't realize it until they have kids. This is, right now, for my wife and I, what brings a lot of smiles to our face. These are our five grandkids. We don't have to pay for these kids. <laughs> we don't have to discipline these kids. If the problems are complex, what do we say? Ask your mom, ask your dad. I don't, I don't do that anymore. I'm not in that business. They just, the, way, the way the deal is, they show up and we start smiling. That's the deal. And then when we get tired, they go home, we can take a nap. <laughs> we can sleep all the way through the night. I mean, grandparenting, you've heard this, is a way better deal than being a parent. It's way better. But the deal is, is you don't get the blessing of the grandchildren if you don't dig the well of a marriage and parenting. You've you got to do the work of parenting. And that takes time. One of the things that's happening increasingly in my generation is there are more and more people my age who are coming to the realization they're never going to be grandparents. And it's sad. I was talking to a neighbor recently. He says he's got three boys. And he just turned to me and says, I don't think I'll ever be a grandfather. I said, why? Because they have no interest in marriage or kids. That's what our culture produces. I didn't ask him, but I guess, my guess is they're getting all the sex they want. So why get married? Why risk kids? Now this man, my age, is realizing he's going to go to his grave and never know the joy of being a grandfather. That's sad. But it takes time to dig that well, and our culture is unwilling to dig it. That's the blessing of family. The other blessing is, is friendship, deep friendship, companionship. You know, I have to be honest, when I uh, married my wife, Rebecca, I was nervous. Not, a, not about marrying her. I knew she was the right one for me. But here's what I was nervous about. She was beautiful. And I had it on good authority that both of us were going to get older. And I was nervous about that. And you know what? That's happened. We've both gotten older. 
And I still think she's attractive. But neither of us are in our 20s. But there's more joy now, after 38 years of marriage, than at the beginning. And the reason is because I've had 38 years now to build a deep friendship with her. And for me, I've needed all of those years. And as I look back, it has been the hard times, the times when we were most sideways with each other that ended up being the rock that we had to drill through to dig the deeper well to joy. And I'm so grateful for the years. So what started out as attraction has deepened into companionship. So marriage is the chance to build a well that goes deep. And when you do that, then when the natural process of aging occurs, and I don't need to get into details about that, then you have access to the deep water table of joy. Because by the time you're my age, you're not that dateable anymore. And over time, you have a deep relationship of love and respect for another. As I, the older I get, the more grateful I am for the commitment of marriage. I mean, my wife is taking me to colonoscopies now. <laughs> That's not what you do on a date. You know, our first date, we saw the Rangers play the Yankees. Okay, that was our first date. I didn't call her up and say, hey, I, I need a ride back from a colonoscopy. That's not where you start. That's where you end up, but that's not where you start. Joy is deep. You have to dig for it. But pleasure is shallow. It's just sitting there. It's just a puddle waiting for you. So now let me talk to the singles. Imagine you've been sitting there thinking, oh, great. Whoopee for all those married people. I'm not married, or was, but I'm, not, I'm single now. So if you're single, does that mean you're relegated to a selfish, joyless existence? No. One of the most interesting passages in regard to this in the Bible is found in Isaiah. Isaiah 53 is the great chapter of prophecy about the sacrifice that the Messiah, Jesus, was going to make for our sins. Isaiah 53 is where we read things like, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This is speaking about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross hundreds of years before he did that. What's interesting is after that great chapter of prophecy that tells us the greatest event in all of human history that's going to change everything, the very next chapter, Isaiah 54, starts with this verse. This is verse 1 of the next chapter. Here's what it says. Sing, barren woman. You who never bore a child, burst into song. Shout for joy, you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. This must have sounded so bizarre back then. Because at this time, women with no husband and no children were desolate. But because of what the Messiah would do, just mentioned the chapter before, People who are single, both women and men, would have reason to sing and shout for joy. Why? Because more are their children. What does this mean? 
Turns out Jesus didn't just come to forgive us. He came to set us in a family, the church of Jesus Christ. He was going to start a new family with a new bride called the church. And everyone who follows him is a part of that family. And that's why, for example, when Jesus is doing miracles, he's in a house and he's told that his mother and brothers have, are outside trying to break through the crowd to get to see him, he responds in a very interesting way. This is what he says in Mark 3:33. Who are my mother and my brothers? Everyone was saying, they're right out there, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle, not his mother and brothers beyond eyesight, looked at those seated in the circle and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. What he was saying is, as you follow me, we're family. Marriage was God's first solution for aloneness and selfishness, but it is not God's only solution. The church is a family. It calls us all out of our selfishness and all out of our sadness. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who started most early churches, said, man, I wish you guys could be unmarried like me because you can invest so much time in the church. You can invest so much time in these relationships. Now, we can't be a substitute as husbands and wives as a church, but we can be brothers and sisters, and we can care for one another long into old age. But like marriage, that's a well that must be dug. That's not surface water. You don't just attend one morning and <gasps> deep relationships flow. That takes time. But what a gift. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words. Very different than the words of our culture. But we only have a few decades to live and we have to decide what words are we going to risk our life with? What words are we going to use to build? What words are we going to be grateful we used when we're in our 70s and 80s and 90s? I thank you for the joy of marriage and for the joy of the church. Help us to dig the well that you've given us with commitment and that you would bring joy out of that. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.